The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In the summer of 2007, a very pregnant 26-year-old Jessie Davis was eagerly preparing for the arrival of her daughter, Chloe. Jessie was a single mother with a good job and a great support system. She loved being a mother and made it the center of her world. On June 14th, Jessie went shopping at a local market and chatted with her mom on the phone. However, Later that day, no one could get a hold of Jessie. When her family went to her home the next morning to check on her, Jessie had vanished. And what they found inside the house led to one of the largest searches for a missing person Ohio has ever seen. Join me now as we look into the disappearance of Jessie Davis a pregnant young mother who was looking forward to growing her family. You'll learn about the complexities of human relationships, the lasting impact of selfish decisions, the surprising power of forgiveness, and a son's enduring love. Jessie Davis was born on May 27, 1981. Her parents, Patty and Ned, wanted a large family, so Jessie enjoyed having many siblings in her life. Sisters Jane and Audrey and brothers Christopher, Kaylin, and David. Jessie lived in the Akron, Ohio area for years and graduated from Coventry High School. By 2007, 26-year-old Jessie lived in Lake Township in Stark County, Ohio, and had a good job roughly 40 minutes away from home at Allstate Insurance in Hudson. She was known for having a kind heart and for always having a big smile on her face. And first and foremost, Jessie loved being a mother. She adored her two-year-old son, Blake, and was near-term pregnant with a girl she had already named, Chloe Leanne. Jessie couldn't wait to meet her daughter. Her co-workers recalled how she would call out to them whenever Chloe kicked, and they all wheeled over in their office chairs to feel the active baby squirm around impatiently, waiting to be born. Jessie had an on-again, off-again relationship with her child's father, Bobby Cutts Jr. Jessie felt that Bobby had the potential to be a good partner and father, but had difficulty getting a handle on his personal life. Born on May 1st, 1977, Bobby was just a few years older than Jesse. He had been an honor roll student at Glen Oak High School in Plain Township, Ohio. Bobby was outgoing and charismatic and had lots of friends. 
He had planned on attending college and considered pursuing a career in politics. But when he unexpectedly learned he was going to have a child with a woman he'd been seeing named Nikki Giovesis, he became a police officer instead. He needed a well-paying, reliable job to fulfill his obligations to his baby girl, Taylor, even though his relationship with Nikki didn't last. Bobby was hired by the Canton Police Department in 2000. During his time on the force, he generally did well at his job, but there was some questionable incidents. For instance, in 2003, he was without work for several months while an investigation was being conducted into how a drug dealer ended up with his service weapon. It is unclear what the investigation uncovered, but Bobby was eventually reinstated. On July 28, 2001, Bobby married Kelly Shop, and they had a daughter together named Brianne. But when the couple separated in May of 2004, Bobby and Jesse fell in love and started a relationship. Jesse was quite taken with Bobby, but he decided it would be best to reconcile with his wife Kelly. However, during his relationship with Jesse, she became pregnant with Blake. Even though Bobby had decided to go back to his wife, he paid child support to Jesse for Blake and visited his son weekly. He tried to fit Blake into his life, but it was not always easy. It was an awkward situation to navigate with his wife Kelly. Every time she saw Jesse, it was difficult for her not to think about her husband being with another woman. Kelly eventually asked that Jesse not enter the family home when she was dropping off Blake. Things were less complicated for Jesse. She was a proud mom and loved Blake with all her heart. He was the center of her world. Everything Jesse did was viewed through the lens on how it would impact Blake. Through 2005 and into late 2006, Bobby and Kelly once again experienced marital problems and they repeatedly broke up, and got back together. A major bone of contention with Bobby's wife was she wasn't sure if he was being unfaithful with Jesse. In November of 2005, Kelly found a pair of another woman's panties stashed in her makeup drawer. According to Kelly, Jesse was all too pleased to inform her they belonged to her in hopes to break up their marriage. Kelly was sure Jesse wanted Bobby all to herself, and it seemed like Jesse had succeeded. When Bobby and Jesse rekindled their relationship, the next time Bobby and Kelly separated, and Jesse became pregnant with Chloe. Bobby's wife Kelly finally moved out in February of 2007 after learning her husband had fathered yet another child with Jesse. Bobby and Jesse were then free to be in a romantic relationship, but they didn't get back together. Bobby still remained on friendly terms with Jesse, though, and was involved in his son Blake's life. Bobby also appeared to be willing to step up after Chloe was born. By the middle of June 2007, Jesse was excitedly preparing for the arrival of Chloe. 
the baby was due in just a week or two. On June 14th, Jessie talked to her mom Patty on the phone and headed to the Acme Fresh Market, a local grocery store, to stock up. Later that day, Jessie's mom and sister Audrey called her several times on the cell phone, but their calls went directly to voicemail. Patty tried to contact her daughter a number of times that evening, but could not get a hold of her. She told herself Jessie must have gone to bed early and she would try again in the morning. Early the next morning, Patty woke up and tried to call Jessie, but still didn't get an answer. Jessie was supposed to drop off Blake at Patty's at 7 a.m., and when she failed to show up, Patty's concern grew. Patty and Audrey drove to Jessie's to check on her. After noticing her car was at home, they knocked on the door, but got no response. Patty realized a sliding glass door was unlocked and entered the home. She walked into the kitchen, calling out for Jessie. As she moved through the kitchen, she noticed Jessie's purse was on the floor. Its contents had been dumped out and strewn all over. Patty was shocked when her grandson Blake ran into the kitchen. He was crying and wearing a soiled, smelly diaper. He looked like he'd been alone for hours. Patty held Blake and asked him where Mummy was. He replied, Mummy is crying. Mummy broke a table. Mummy is in the rug. Consumed with horror, Patty ran upstairs into her daughter's bedroom. It was obvious there had been a struggle. The mattress from Jessie's bed knocked partially off the bed. A table and lamp knocked over and bleached patches were noticeable on the floor. Patty also saw her daughter's gold and burgundy comforter was missing. After frantically searching the rest of the home for her daughter, Patty was distraught and called 911 to report Jesse's disappearance. Sheriff Swanson's office can I help you? I don't know what's happening. He's gone in my Hello? Room. Yes. Can I help you? Yes, we need we need help at 8686 Essex. 8686 what street? Essex. What's the problem? My my daughter's gone. <laughs> Due in two weeks, and my grandson's so alone, and this whole house has been ransacked. How old is this? My grandson's two. And he's gone? He's here alone. Okay, you need to calm down so I can understand you. I'm trying. Okay. He's here alone, and she's gone. Her car's here. Who's gone? My daughter. Okay. How old is she? She's 27 years old. Okay, and how was the child that was left alone? She didn't leave him alone. My God, something's wrong. She's two, she's two in two weeks, and she's just missing her cars here, her purse. The house is trashed, and she's not here. Okay, what's your name, ma'am? My name is Patty Porter. Patty what? Porter. There's just get somebody here. When the police arrived, they carefully examined the scene and then swiftly took action. 
Investigators suspected something terrible had happened in the house. They sent Blake to a local hospital to be checked over. There was so much bleach at the scene, there was concern he might have ingested some. To everyone's relief, after Blake was cleaned up and given a thorough checkup, he received a clean bill of health. Concern that Jesse had met with foul play continued to grow. The investigators determined there was no sign of a forced entry and Jesse's car keys and purse were in her home. Jesse's cell phone was missing, along with the comforter from her bed. The disappearance of the comforter seemed to eerily line up with young Blake's declaration that his mom was in a rug. It'd be easy for a two-year-old to confuse a comforter with a rug. Everyone the police talked to stressed it would be very uncharacteristic of Jesse to leave Blake unattended, and it didn't make sense that Jesse would leave her home without her vehicle or purse. She was due to have Chloe any day now, so she wouldn't have willingly left on foot or without her identification. While the authorities dispatched a forensic team to the house, they started contacting local hospitals to see if anyone fitting Jesse's description had been admitted. When this was a dead end, they interviewed Jesse's family, neighbors, friends, and Bobby. After not learning anything that could help locate Jesse, a missing person report was filed and the search for Jesse and Chloe began in earnest. With the similarities between Jesse's disappearance and the Lacey Peterson case, the search for Jesse drew national attention. Lacey's case had gripped the American public when the pregnant young wife mysteriously disappeared on Christmas Eve years earlier. A large-scale search for Jesse was put together by Texas EquiSearch, a nonprofit search and rescue organization dedicated to finding missing persons. The search involved helicopters, a drone plane, sonar equipment, and more than 1,500 volunteers showed up to look for Jesse. Tim Miller, the founding director of Texas EquiSearch, headed up the search for Jesse. He was moved by the number of volunteers who came out to support their efforts. You know, I anticipated a big crowd. I don't know if I anticipated this big a crowd the first day on the, you know, on the, on the actual big search. So, uh, it's heartwarming. You know, it, it lets me know how much this community cares. And, uh, and I've said this before, there's a lot of strength in numbers. We've got a lot of numbers here. We're going to be able to cover a lot of ground. Uh, and I'm optimistic. Before the volunteers went out on the first day, Jesse's sister Whitney opened the search with a prayer and thanked everyone for lending a hand. I, first, I just I want to thank everybody for coming out. Um, I can't describe the feeling of looking out and seeing all these faces out here. Um, it means a lot to have all these people out here to help us look for Jesse. God, I just pray that you would um, lead Tim and his group in the right direction today. I, I pray that you would just help clear everybody's head and help us to find something that would lead us to Jesse or somebody that knows something about Jesse. Um, I, I believe that everything happens for a reason, God, and I know that 
something good is going to come out of this. Um, and I'm thankful that everybody came out here today. I, I can't even describe how good it feels. Um, I think that everybody just realizes that um, my sister is an amazing person. Um, I, know, I know that that's why everyone's out here today because you can tell this by looking at her that she is such a strong woman. She is an amazing person and she is she's an awesome mother. Um, and we just we want to bring her and Chloe back. Thank you. Throughout the search, Tim Miller kept the media informed about the progress. At the start, he was optimistic Jesse would be found. All right, you know what? We don't have any real new updates, but we want to uh, let y'all know what we're doing with 1,500 people out there. Uh, right now, our ground searchers are doing eight or nine square miles of searching, which is an incredible amount since it's only 12.30, and we really didn't start getting them out to about 9 o'clock. Uh, the search is going to stop at 1,900 hours tonight and, uh, and continue at 7 o'clock tomorrow morning if we don't find anything. Uh, again, I'm so optimistic with all the resources we have here and the people that we got that if she is findable, some people are not findable. If she is findable, we're going to find her. As the days passed with no sign of Jesse, the number of volunteers dwindled. This, however, did not mean the police gave up on the case. Instead, their investigation only intensified. There was a fleeting glimmer of hope the week after Jesse vanished. A baby was found on the doorstep of a home located 45 miles from where Jesse had disappeared. It was first thought the infant could be baby Chloe, but it was quickly determined that wasn't the case. Before any forensic tests were even done, a woman came forward and admitted to abandoning the baby. After a short investigation, the Stark County Sheriff's Office released a statement confirming the incident was unrelated to Jesse and Chloe's disappearance. The Canton Police Department had trouble believing a member of their force could be responsible for Jesse's disappearance. But the Stark County Sheriff's Department held a different opinion. From the beginning, they felt Bobby was involved. So on June 18th, when the FBI reached out and offered their services, the department gratefully accepted. The FBI and Sheriff's Department worked together on any leads regarding Jesse's disappearance and any evidence they uncovered seemed to substantiate their suspicions that Bobby was involved. Along with collecting DNA samples from the suspect and evidence from the crime scene, the investigators checked out Kelly and Bobby's alibis. Bobby's soon-to-be ex-wife had a solid alibi and was quickly ruled out as a suspect. But Bobby's alibi was far from airtight. He had told police that when he had left Champ's Bar on the evening of June 13th, he went straight home. However, the authorities were able to determine he actually stopped by Stephanie Hawthorne's house, a woman he was seeing who he had never mentioned to the authorities. Plus, 
even though records showed Bobby had called Jesse on the morning of June 14th, like he'd told the police. Cell tower data indicated the call originated from a location in Summit County, not from his home, as he had previously stated. Digging deeper, investigators looked through Bobby's online presence and discovered something unsettling. Just days after Jesse disappeared, he was active on an internet dating site. In his profile, he described himself as a police officer who was easygoing and who liked to have fun. Instead of putting his all into searching for Jesse and Chloe, Bobby was busy searching for his next good time. Bobby steadfastly denied any involvement in Jesse and Chloe's disappearance, but this became even harder to believe when the authorities questioned Blake. When asked if he knew where his mother was, the toddler said, Mummy is crying. Mummy is in the rug. Mummy broke the table. These statements aligned with what Blake had first told his grandmother when she found him alone on the morning of June 15th. The sergeant interviewing Blake also noted, Blake repeated these statements multiple times without being prompted. And then, the boy added, Daddy's mad. When asked why Daddy was mad, Blake was unable to add any further details. He just continued to repeat, Daddy's mad. Homing in on Bobby, the authorities looked into his previous relationships with women to see if there was any sign he had a violent streak. Nikki Giavasis, the woman Bobby had a child with in 2000, was willing to share the horror story she endured during her relationship with Bobby. The couple had tried to live together for a while, for their daughter Taylor's sake, but according to Nikki, Bobby was controlling and abusive. She said he had a dark side. The violence escalated until she had to pay a visit to the emergency room and subsequently wore a neck brace for months. After four months of multiple physical altercations, Nikki called it quits. When she started dating another man, Bobby broke into her home and threatened her. The pair's continuous custody dispute and losing control of Nikki was too much for Bobby. Nikki called the police, and Bobby was charged with disorderly conduct. She told the police she feared for her safety. Bobby pleaded guilty to disorderly conduct and served three years probation. When describing what kind of man Bobby was, Nikki explained, he puts on an air of being very charismatic, and people like him because they think he's a good person, but in private, he can be manipulative, controlling, and abusive, like Jekyll and Hyde. Bobby shocked everyone when he put an end to his current manipulations by going to the FBI office on June 23rd with his lawyer, Brad Iams. A little over a week after Jesse's disappearance, Bobby told investigators it was time to end the charade because Jesse's family and his family have been through so much. Bobby was ready to lead them to Jesse's body. Driving for close to two hours, Bobby led investigators to Hampton Hills Metro Park in Summit County, Ohio. 
at the request of the FBI, National Park Service Rangers, cordoned off West Bath Road. Following Bobby's directions, Jesse's body was found 40 or 50 feet down a wooden embankment in an overgrown section of the park known as Top of the World. Although it felt like the middle of nowhere, the location was in fact close to a dirt road leading to a popular parking area. Upon discovering the body, Bobby was placed under arrest. The authorities contacted Jesse's family and then held a press conference. At approximately 3.30 p.m. today, we recovered the body of what who we believe to be is Jesse Marie Davis in Summit County, Ohio. Presently, deputies from the Star County Sheriff's Office, agents of the FBI, the Summit County Coroner's Office, the Metro Parks Police, and the National Park Service are on scene. We have placed Bobby Cutts under arrest, and he is presently in the custody of the Star County Sheriff's Office. Bobby Cutts will appear in the Canton Municipal Court on Monday, June 25, 2007, where he will officially be arraigned on two counts of murder, which includes the unborn child. After Jesse and Chloe were found, many members of the community who had participated in the search visited the park and placed flowers and ribbons on the park's main sign. They also set up a makeshift memorial close to where Jesse and Chloe were found under a silver maple tree. A sign placed at the site read, God bless you, Jesse and Chloe, forever in our hearts. Others placed flowers, stuffed animals, and cards on the front porch of Jesse's home, with hundreds of people stopping by to pray and offer their condolences. A post-mortem was performed by the Summit County authorities because that was the jurisdiction Jesse's body was found in. Jesse's identity was confirmed by using dental records, and it was thought she had died sometime on June 14th. Baby Chloe was still visible inside of Jesse's body, but it was difficult to determine Jesse's exact cause of death because her remains were in an advanced state of decomposition. Regardless of the poor state of Jesse's body, Summit County Medical Examiner Lisa Kohler was sure the young mother had been murdered. The medical examiner stated, because of the stage of decomposition and the putrefaction of the tissues, I could no longer identify what type of injury had resulted in her death, but the fact that she is found in some great distance from her home, wrapped in bedding and left out in the open field is evidence that there was homicidal intent here. A natural death would not occur under these circumstances. Suicide would not be an issue in this situation, and based on circumstances, an accident was also ruled out. Therefore, it would be a homicidal death. Unfortunately, I am unable to say exactly how the death occurred. The investigators, though, were sure Jesse's death had occurred at the hands of Bobby. When he told investigators where they could find Jesse's body, Bobby also implicated a longtime friend, Misha Farrell, in the crime. She had graduated in 1995 from Glen Oak High School with Bobby. Bobby said she had helped him dispose of the body. Misha worked at a Denny's restaurant part-time as a dishwasher and lived in a modest apartment 
with her 11-year-old daughter. But times were tough, and the single mother was about to be evicted. After the police raided her apartment on June 23rd, they spent two hours searching it for evidence. They seized a lot of evidence, including cleaning supplies, duct tape, and bottles of bleach. On November 5th, 2007, just as her trial was about to begin, Misha pled guilty to charges of obstruction of justice and complicity to gross abuse of a corpse for her role in Jesse's death and disappearance. As part of her plea agreement, Misha would receive two years in prison but would be considered for parole after one year. However, these terms were conditional on Misha truthfully testifying against Bobby at his trial. Bobby was arraigned on June 25, 2007, and his bond was set at $5 million. Later that same day, Bobby's status with the Canton Police Department changed. After having been on administrative leave, Bobby was instead suspended without pay. After weeks of refusing to believe the worst in one of their own, the Canton Police Department was finally coming to terms with the idea Bobby was a killer. Bobby was charged with the aggravated murder of Jesse, as well as the aggravated murder of Chloe. As Ohio law allows, a murder charge against someone accused of killing a fetus that would be able to live outside the womb. He was now looking at the death penalty for the two aggravated murder charges. Bobby was also charged with committing several lesser crimes, including abuse of a corpse, burglary, and child endangerment for when he left Blake alone. When Bobby testified at his trial that began on February 4th, 2008, he claimed Jesse's death was entirely accidental. He never meant to hurt her. He told the jury his version of the story from the witness stand while clutching tissues in his hands and occasionally sobbing. Bobby said he stopped by Jesse's house to pick up Blake on June 14th, but that things went badly when Blake was not ready to go and Jesse was still asleep. When he woke her up, Jesse was little help and he thought she was moving slowly on purpose. They got into an argument about whether or not Bobby was rushing her. Irritated with the situation, Bobby tried to leave the house, but Jesse reportedly grabbed him by the shirt to stop him, and he pulled away. When she stepped in front of him again, he said, I don't have to be here, and you're taking my time. Jesse grabbed him by the arms and pushed him back so he could not leave. Bobby told the court he then put his finger up to his nose, as if to get snot out of it and put it up to her face. In response, Jesse bit down hard on his finger. Bobby was shocked when Jesse bit him. He was just fooling around and never really intended wiping snot on her face. It was just a ploy to get her out of his way so he could leave. In the heat of the moment, they started to struggle. Somehow, his elbow hit her in the throat and she fell to the ground. Bobby then said he rushed to Jesse, but she was unresponsive. He checked for a pulse on her neck and began to administer CPR. He'd only ever performed it on dummies, so he struggled to remember what to do. He tilted her head back 
pinched her nose, and then breathed into her mouth. When that didn't work, he resorted to chest compressions in groups of ten. Jesse still wasn't moving, so Bobby said he found some bleach, thinking the strong smell would revive her. He poured bleach into a cup from the bottle and tried to wake her up with the fumes. Again, he was unable to revive her. While he was getting to his feet, he stumbled and knocked the bleach over, accounting for the bleach found on the floor at the scene. Bobby told the jury he almost left, but then decided he couldn't leave Jesse there dead for their son Blake to discover. It occurred to him to go to Misha Farrell for help. Maybe she could watch Blake for him while he figured out what to do. He wrapped Jesse in the comforter from her bed, put her in the back of his truck, and headed to Misha's. When asked why he didn't call 911, Bobby claimed Jesse's cell phone didn't work. She didn't have a house phone, and it never occurred to him to use his own cell phone. He must have been in shock. He couldn't believe any of this was happening. He said he never intended to hurt anyone. When Bobby arrived at Misha's house, he was very upset and asked her to accompany him without explaining why. After she got into the truck and they drove away, Bobby told her something bad had happened. He said something was wrong with his baby's mother. Finally, he blurted out, Jesse's body was wrapped up and in the back of his truck. Misha agreed to help him and accompanied him to the park to dispose of Jesse's body and a couple of garbage bags of evidence. After dumping Jesse's body, Bobby went on with his regular routine, hoping the whole situation would go away. He was supposed to be coaching football practice that day. That was something he did to support the youth in his community. So he called the head coach and explained he would be late. He then made a stop and picked up some gardening supplies because he was planning on doing some landscaping in his yard. He then went home, showered, and continued with his day. He told the court he never thought about two-year-old Blake at home all alone. He stated he just wanted the whole situation to go away. He worked the night shift that evening, and when he left work at 7.45 a.m., he was heading to Jesse's house to get Blake, who had then been alone for almost 24 hours. On his way, he received a call from Jesse's sister telling him Jesse was missing. When he got to the house, he said he was relieved to see Blake was safe. Bobby told the court he didn't admit at the time he'd accidentally killed Jesse because he feared no one would believe him. Bobby's intuition was right. Most people didn't believe his account of Jesse's murder. During the trial, although forensic evidence played a key role, it was the witness testimony that further decimated Bobby's character and called his story into question. Although Misha's testimony basically supported Bobby's, there was one important aspect that was significantly different. Misha added to her account that when she realized Jesse's body was in the back of the truck on the night the pair had disposed of the body, she had asked Bobby what had happened. He responded 
by making strangling motions with his hands, which didn't support his story of accidentally elbowing Jesse in the throat. Bobby's close friend, Richard Mitchell, also testified. He said, about one month before Jesse vanished, Bobby had mentioned to him he was going to kill that bitch and throw her in the woods. Richard told the jury at the time he didn't think Bobby was serious, but when Jesse disappeared and her body was later recovered in the woods, he wondered if his friend had planned on killing Jesse for some time. Along with Bobby's ex-girlfriend, Nikki Giovesas, who testified about the abuse Bobby had subjected to her years earlier, there was what seemed to be an endless parade of women who came forward to share their stories of abuse they had suffered while dating Bobby. Also, four other women testified they were having sexual relationships with Bobby during the time he was trying to juggle his wife and Jesse. Taken together, this witness testimony highlighted Bobby's poor treatment of women as well as a violent, abusive side to his personality that he had trouble controlling. And of course, there was Blake's haunting statements. When he was asked where his mummy was, the toddler told his grandmother and the investigators, Mummy is crying. Mummy is in the rug. Mummy broke the table. And later he added, Daddy's mad. A statement he repeated over and over again when asked what happened to his mom. Blake's statements led the prosecution to argue the young boy had witnessed his mom's murder. The prosecution told the jury not to believe Bobby's story about Jesse's death being an accident and that he was a police officer. Bobby should have known better. The state contended Bobby snapped under the pressure of his failing marriage. The impending birth of his child with Jesse and the money issues he was having. Bobby already had three children to support, one with an ex-girlfriend, one with his wife, and one with Jesse. And then, Jesse was pregnant again with Chloe. Even though Bobby made $5,800 a month as a police officer and a security guard, he had mounting debt and it was hard to imagine how he would support four children and still have any money left over for himself. In their closing argument, Bobby's lawyers admitted their client had displayed poor judgment after Jesse's death, but they said the prosecution had failed to prove Bobby was in financial distress or that he had intentionally killed Jesse and Chloe. The jury, however, did not buy the defense's version of events. After almost 22 hours of deliberation, they found Bobby guilty of the aggravated murder of Chloe, the murder of Jesse, abuse of a corpse, burglary, and child endangerment. Later, jury foreman Charles Gillespie explained Bobby's failure to do anything to save Chloe played a large role in finding him guilty to aggravated murder in the baby's death. The foreman said, We all felt that at that point Jesse might have been dead, but there was a chance the baby could live, and he didn't do anything to stop it. He went ahead with the cover-up. The conviction of aggravated murder in the death of Chloe carried with it the possibility of the death penalty. 
but the jury didn't find Bobby guilty of aggravated murder in Jesse's case, suggesting they didn't think that he went to Jesse's house that day with the intent to kill her. The penalty phase of Bobby's trial began on February 25, 2008. Witnesses took the stand and pleaded for Bobby's life, arguing he was really a good man who had made some terrible decisions. Bobby's mom was the first one to speak on behalf of Bobby. She told the jury her son was never any trouble. He was a good youngster who was active in sports, scouts, and his church. One of Bobby's former teachers testified Bobby had been an outgoing, kind child who was nicknamed Gobble by his classmates. He was thoughtful and loved helping the teacher. For example, he often volunteered to pick up stray crayons off the floor. When Bobby's dad testified, the court learned Bobby had earned the nickname Gobble because he was a chubby little kid and resembled a little butterball turkey. In spite of this bullying, Bobby was a gifted child in school, but his dad admitted Bobby lacked a solid male role model in his life. His dad blamed himself stating the breakup of his marriage was caused by his own drinking and gambling. Bobby also took the stand to apologize and make an emotional plea for his life. I cannot begin to explain everything that happened those awful days of June. It was a nightmare that would continue to haunt me the rest of my days. To imagine that I was responsible for the death of Jesse, the mother of my children, and my unborn daughter is beyond any words that I can express. Words cannot bring them back, nor can it erase the pain that I've caused. But I want to apologize. I want to apologize to Patty and Mr. Davis and all of Jesse's family. If I could do anything to bring them back to you, I would. I pray that you find peace and that you someday find room for forgiveness. I also want to thank Patty for taking care of Blake and helping him get through this difficult time. I recognize now that from the moments of Jesse's death, every decision I made was wrong. Although I never intended on causing any harm to Jesse or our baby, I accept responsibility. I also know that by my inability and unwillingness to come forward, I caused you greater pain, which I deeply regret. For these actions, I also want to apologize to the community as a whole who opened their hearts to Jesse and the baby. Perhaps the hardest part is the knowledge that I left Blake, my thunder, alone in my moments of panic and selfishness. I will never be able to forgive myself and thank God 
for looking out for him during those long hours. I have always prided myself on being a good father. And I fell miserably in that role last June. I want to apologize to my mother, father, Kelly, family, and my friends. You have all supported and encouraged me all my life. I apologize for not being truthful to you. And I thank you for never letting me down the way I disappointed you. Lastly, I want to apologize to Maisha for bringing her into my nightmare. I'm so sorry. I apologize to her family deeply. My life, plans, and goals cannot adequately be expressed in words. I have so much in my heart. I especially pray for the opportunity in any way to maintain a relationship with my family, especially my children, to be a part of their lives in the future. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I'm asking you to spare my life. Jesse's family members had the opportunity to share victim impact statements and to speak to Bobby. Whitney, Jesse's sister, looked directly at Bobby and told him, You got rid of someone that was an inconvenience. I hate you. You used and manipulated her over and over, and still you sit there, and you are not crying. I don't believe that you are sorry for what you did. I believe that you are sorry that you got caught up in all your lies. I don't believe that you would know the truth. Jesse's dad, Ned, and mom, Patty, had very different views about Bobby. Ned was enraged Bobby had murdered his daughter and Chloe and wished he could have had some time alone with Bobby to avenge their needless deaths. Patty, on the other hand, risked her relationship with her family by asking the court to spare Bobby's life and offering Bobby her forgiveness. She told Bobby that with God's help, she would try to raise Blake in a way that would enable him to forgive his dad. Don't even look at me. Just put your head down. Your Honor, he violently murdered her. Five foot four, nine months pregnant. That baby could have been delivered. Chloe. Jesse was the voice of reason. Family had some difficult times. Jesse was the one that said, let it go. Jesse was the voice of reason that believed the best, looked for the best. She gave it her all. Takes a pillow, chokes her out. Whatever you did, you killed her. You murdered her violently. You won't give me any quality time with him, but I'd love to have some time with him. Thank you, Andrew. I mean, I have a family to go home to after this. But I pray that you make a way for this man to someday 
be able to get out of there and begin a new life. And to hold his son, maybe as a man, and I hope you pray that I'm able to raise him to forgive you. He knows what you did. You would not believe the stories he's told us. After four days of deliberation, the juries reached a decision on Bobby's sentence. On February 27th, Bobby learned his life was spared, but he would be serving at least 57 years behind bars. He was sentenced to life in prison with parole eligibility after 30 years for the aggravated murder of Chloe. The additional 27 years without parole tacked on to the end of the sentence was for Jesse's murder, the abuse of a corpse, burglary, and child endangerment. The judge rejected the defense's request that would have allowed the sentences to be merged, paving the way for early parole. As a result, Bobby would not be eligible for parole until he was 87 years old. The jury foreman revealed they had quickly decided against the death sentence because Bobby had no history of violence. The prosecution failed to convince the jury Bobby went to Jesse's house that morning, intent on killing her to avoid paying child support. According to the foreman, the jury believed it could have been accidental. It could have been on purpose. But Bobby did not go there with the intent to do that. As he was leaving the courthouse, Jesse's dad, Ned, told reporters that unlike his ex-wife, Patty, he had not forgiven Bobby. Even through his anger, Ned was capable of seeing how much everyone involved with the case had suffered. He said, Bobby violently murdered my daughter and granddaughter. What would you do? But Mr. and Mrs. Cutts did not raise him to do this. Of that, I'm sure. Everybody lost today. Jesse's death had a tremendous impact on her community. Before her funeral, Hundreds of people paid their final respects to Jesse and Chloe at an emotional candlelight vigil outside her Lake Township duplex. Jesse's funeral service was attended by more than 750 people, including many of those who had searched for the young mother after she disappeared. Due to its popularity, portions of the service were even broadcasted by a number of media outlets. Ned and Patty shared with fellow mourners how much they missed and loved Jesse. It's a time of sorrow and pain for us all. And to my children, I say, may we strive to honor Jesse's memory through reconciliation, communication, and kindness to one another. I would like to thank the Lord today for such an amazing daughter. A daughter that could have only come from God, who had an ability to love people and to love life. The community stepped up and took action to try to make Blake's future as bright as possible. Instead of bringing flowers to honor Jesse, 
the community made donations to the Blake Davis Trust Fund. The fund was set up to help pay for Blake's college tuition and other various expenses. In July of 2007, the community organized the Blake's Bright Future Tomorrow Festival and auction. The event raised funds for Blake by auctioning off signed memorabilia from celebrities like LeBron James, Faith Hill, and Tim McGraw. Witnessing Jesse's murder and losing both parents at such a young age has been incredibly difficult for Blake. In the years following his mom's death, Blake would try to call her on an old toy cell phone. Patty said she spent many hours trying to explain to Blake his mom could not answer because she was in heaven with Jesus. Over the years, Patty has ensured Blake built a relationship with his dad. Patty explained she did this to fulfill a promise she made to her daughter in a conversation two weeks before she was killed. This relationship has been forged through letter writing and prison visits that began when Blake was only six years old. Bobby still has the first letter Blake ever sent him. At the time, he was too young to write, so Blake dictated the content to Patty. The letter read, Dad, I love you, but I'm angry because you made my mom go to heaven. I forgive you but I'm mad at you. When thinking about the letter, Bobby wondered, how do you at five or six process that your parents aren't there and knowing your other parent is responsible for the one not being alive anymore? Obviously, I was sad receiving the letter, but I was kind of relieved too that he was able to express to me how he felt because there are adults who can't express how they feel. Patty is now one of Bobby's biggest supporters. She believes he is a changed man and that they are spiritual brothers and sisters. She has even appealed to the state governor for his early release so he can be more of a father to Blake. The odds of success, however, are slim. The Stark County Prosecutor's Office has stated they will vigorously oppose any consideration of early release for Mr. Cuts. In spite of the many challenges he has faced, Blake is becoming a young man who would make his mom proud. Wanting to help others, he has set his sights on being a civil rights leader. His grandmother likes to point out he might even be the youngest member of the NAACP. Blake possesses his mom's kind and caring spirit, and he honors Jesse's memory every day by striving to make the world a better place.
Writing and research for this episode was by Christine Penhale. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. We'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. I'd like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Cindy Y. Catherine N. Ray Z. Lisa H. Lulu D. Amy C. Kathleen D. Lillian G. Anna. Frankie H. Josie B. Karen W. Rodney. Marlene E. And Thor I. And now I would like to introduce you to the podcast, Crime and Scandal, from host Levi Page. Hi, I'm Levi, host of the true crime podcast, Crime and Scandal. Tune into Crime and Scandal as I dive into the twists and turns of scandalous crime stories. Whether it's an unsolved mystery that keeps you up at night, or a story with riveting courtroom testimony, 911 audio, or interrogation footage, I take you through the case beginning to end. Subscribe to your new true crime audio addiction, Crime and Scandal, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more info, go to crimeandscandal.com. That's crime and scandal. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at madnesspod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G E standing at my door. I hope they can't get in